1: So I sent out a query to a batch of, in the beginning, three agents. And then one of them got back to me and said, oh, you know, this sounds really interesting. Can you send me the rest of the manuscript? And I didn't have the rest of the manuscript. And <laughs> she, she sort of said, oh dear, that's not how it's done. You have to finish the manuscript first before you start querying. So I kind of just put the book on the back burner because I was teaching and I was also still writing scripts for Hollywood you know I was working on it really slowly at a snail's pace. but this agent who now actually represents me, her name is Lucy Carson she was very persistent and she just kept checking in with me and said how how far along are you? are you are you done yet? Are you done yet And uh, <laughs> two years later I still wasn't done.
0: And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Academy Award-nominated screenwriter and debut novelist Iris Shamashida spoke to me about working with Clint Eastwood, her journey from Hollywood to publishing, and falling down the rabbit hole with her first mystery, City Under One Roof. Iris has been working in Hollywood for over 15 years and was nominated for a Best Original Screenplay Oscar for the movie Letters from Iwo Jima, directed by Clint Eastwood. Her debut novel is City Under One Roof, described as Alice in Wonderland meets Fargo. In the ultimate locked room mystery, the novel drops readers into an isolated snowy town and is perfect for fans of Twin Peaks, Mare of Easttown, and Broadchurch. A uh, publisher's weekly starred review noted unusual topography plays a major role in screenwriter Yamashita's atmospherically charged debut and number one New York times bestselling author CJ box called the book a compulsive page turner that's both atmospheric and claustrophobic at the same time. Iris continues to work in Hollywood developing for both film and streaming media. She's taught screenwriting at UCLA and the American film Institute. Now stay tuned until the end of the show for a preview of the audiobook. Excerpted courtesy Penguin Random House Audio from City Under One Roof by Iris Yamashita, read by Aspen Vincent, Shannon Cho, and Anna Caputo. In this file, Iris and I discussed how she kept her dream of becoming a novelist alive, the reverse path from TV pilot to novel, what her transition from the movie world to the book world was like, why nothing is precious, vomit drafting, finding flow state versus slow state, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published. And drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. We are back on the Writer Files. I am honored today to be joined by Academy Award-nominated screenwriter and debut novelist, Irish Yamashita, is joining us today. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome, awesome. Well, I can't wait to talk about all things writing and, of course, um, this debut novel, City Under One Roof, just getting some really fantastic praise and Congrats! How are you feeling right now on this? Uh, the um, just kind of like the beginning of the, the tour season, I guess, for, for this latest. Yeah, it's a little
1: bit of a daze for me, <laughs> but uh, definitely enjoying enjoying the process, enjoying um, meeting people. I had my publication day on Tuesday in a room full of my friends and family. And that was so nice. It was it was just a highlight of my life.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. Especially since so many writers have had to kind of launch and have their pub day be kind of like an online circus. And and yeah, I'm sure you're doing a mix of things, but yeah, that's cool that you got to be um, in a room and kind of feel that energy, I'm sure.
1: Oh, yes, it, it was so nice. And it was so nice to be able to realize a a lifelong dream. I mean, since I was a kid, I always wanted to have a book written
0: eventually. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to talk about this lifelong dream of yours. And of course this, um, very interesting, uh, career that you have had as a writer and other, but yeah, tell us a little bit about kind of your superhero origins, because I understand that, you know, as you put it, kind of fiction was, um, something that you had always kind of pursued on the side, but you had um, earned like a master's in engineering and thought, you know, that that might be the path for you. But of course, kind of kept the dream alive and then became this uh, Academy Award nominated, Oscar nominated screenwriter um, and worked with uh, some really fantastic people in Hollywood and continue to do so to this day, I understand. But talk about, yeah, the genesis of, of this now novelist career.
1: Yeah, I, as I said, it's been a lifelong dream. I've always loved writing stories as a hobby, but, you know, I had Asian parents who kind of said that you can't make that as your career. So I did get my master's in engineering, as you said, and I was working a full-time job, but I, but I was still passionate about writing. So it was something I always kept on the side, like it was my minor. Um, I would take night classes after work. Um, but I thought I was going to write a novel. Uh, so I was taking classes and writing novels, but an, I I could never finish one. I think I didn't have the discipline to actually finish a novel. So then I turned to screenwriting because it was much shorter. It was only about 100 pages for screenplay with a lot of white space. Hmm. So I thought, yeah, I could do this. So I switched over to screenwriting, and it was a – um. Yes, yeah, struck by lightning kind of career when I was able to get the job with Clint Eastwood and write a movie for him. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think writing a novel though is always still something I wanted to do. So um, it took this long to percolate an idea for one.
0: Yeah. Well, I've heard you talk about it a little bit. And um, from what I understand, it had sprung from the idea that you had for a TV pilot, right? And as uh, someone working in Hollywood, this is not an uncommon kind of um, aspiration to, to you know, write a TV pilot, get a, get a TV um, show uh, picked up, and yeah, talk a little bit about that really interesting um, process from the idea of a TV pilot to now debut novel.
1: Yeah, usually it works the other way around. Usually, um, there's a book and that's the intellectual property and then it makes its way over to, um, the screen world. But for me, I, um, I wasn't known in the streaming world. So I wanted to write a sample. So I was trying to come up with an idea for a sample to write a pilot for a series. And um, this murder mystery idea came about from that. And then producers looked at my sample and thought, oh, this is a great idea. Maybe we should try to pitch it. But then that involved a lot of work, which was coming up with a whole season, coming up with these characters and their arcs and you know, a lot of work. And so coming up with the ideas for the for the series, I realized, wow, I've done so much work. I think I can write a book about this.
0: That's cool. And then, of course, reality sets in, and you have to sit down and and actually get the pages. But I understand that also, like the path from um, actually, you know, the, the initial drafting and the creation of it. You came up with some really interesting processes, um, but that initially. It had You had not um, gone or queried with a complete manuscript, right?
1: Yes, that's exactly right. I, I started writing the novel and um, yeah, I didn't really know how things worked. So I wrote, I think, about six chapters. And then I went the old-fashioned route where I was looking through the guide to literary agents. And I just started making a list of um, agents who might represent this genre, who, you know, might be open to new writers. Um, So I sent out a query to a batch of three in the beginning, three agents. And then one of them got back to me and said, oh, you know, this sounds really interesting. Can you send me the rest of the manuscript? And I didn't have the rest of the manuscript. And (laughs) she, she sort of said, oh dear, that's not how it's done. You have to finish the manuscript first before you start querying. So I kind of just put the book on the back burner because I was teaching and I was also still writing scripts for Hollywood. You know, I was working on it really slowly at a snail's pace, but this agent who now actually represents me—her name is Lucy Carson. She was very persistent, and she just kept checking in with me and said, "How how far along are you? Are you are you done yet? Are you done yet?" And uh, <laughs> two years later, I still wasn't done. Um, but it was 2020, and it was the middle of COVID. And she um, said, "You know, these are really strange times, and you know, maybe we can try this. Maybe we can try sending the partial manuscript to to an exclusive with uh, with a publisher and see, you know, what they say." So we did that, and I talked to the um, the editor there at Berkeley and um i told her how the rest of the book would play out and um and i actually because i had originally thought of this for streaming i had an idea for what a second season would look like as well and um it just miraculously ended up with not just a one book deal but a two book deal so it was just again another lightning strikes moment for me
2: amazing
0: Yeah, that's really, really an inspiring story and kind of an exciting one for you. But then, of course, you had to sit down and and get to work. And um, I want to talk about that process, but I want to mention the book again. Sitting Under One Roof has had quite an amazing reception uh, for a debut, has been named Amazon Editor's Pick for Best Mystery Thriller Suspense, whole raft of others, um, Reader's Digest Books We Can't Wait to Read in 2023. Uh, January Indie Next list and so on and so forth, and the praise has been amazing. You've gotten some uh, shout-outs from some of your peers and some big name mystery writers and crime writers. Um, but yeah, it's been described as I think that, that the uh, that the elevator pitch is like Alice in Wonderland meets Fargo. Of course, that doesn't do it justice, um, but I love that <laughs> description because uh, if you if you don't if you don't read that kind of into the into the manifest you know of course there are quite a few um filmic references at least from a genre standpoint but yeah talk a little bit about kind of the genesis of this fantastic uh what we're calling like the ultimate locked room thriller because of course it's about a stranded detective who tries to solve a murder in a tiny alaskan town where everyone lives in a single high-rise building quite quite a compelling premise. But yeah, talk a little bit about the inspiration behind it.
1: I must have watched a documentary about the uh, real city, um, which is the inspiration for my fake city. Uh, but um, it was over 20 years ago because uh, the documentary I remember seeing, the only way into the city by land was by train. And it you had to go through a tunnel, through a mountain. And uh, I just... I thought, well, that's really cool. I mean, now since 2000, you can actually drive through the tunnel, but it's still a one-way uh, a one-way road. So they switch directions every half hour, going in or going out. And I just felt like when I was driving through that tunnel, which is very long, it's two and a half miles, and it's it feels kind of like a mining cave. And I just felt like I was falling down the rabbit hole of Alice in Wonderland. And I was going to end up in this very strange, quirky place with a lot of quirky characters. And so that was sort of the jumping off point. And so when I think of my characters, because it's told in three voices, and we have um, Kara Kennedy, who is the investigator of this gruesome murder Um, She's sort of the Alice, right? She's coming into the city as an outsider and then she gets trapped there uh, after an avalanche closes the tunnel. And then my second voice is Amy Lynn and she's a teenager who lives there and she's the one who had discovered the body parts washed up on the shore and her mother runs the local Chinese restaurant. And I think of her as sort of like the white rabbit that Kara chases recluse. And <laughs> then the third voice is um, Lonnie Mercer. And she is also a resident, but she has a mental disability. And she has a pet moose, And she talks in word salads. And um, she also wears a different colored beret every day. And I think of her as the Mad Hatter.
0: <laughs> right. Um. Well, kudos. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty pretty interesting stuff. Um, very entertaining, and uh, as I had mentioned, it, like has some cinematic qualities to it. Obviously, given your background writing for film, and one of my questions would be how how soon are we going to see it on the uh, <laughs> on the screen? Because it seems like somebody would have already come calling.
1: Well, um, fingers crossed knock on wood, uh, that someone will pick it up. Um, We are, uh, yeah, we are trying to go out with it um, uh, based on now, you know, this intellectual property. Uh, We'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, well, I don't, I can't imagine that uh, it will be long before something, something really cool happens with that because you can kind of picture some of these scenes, obviously, um, evocative and, and I will mention Fantastic Publishers Weekly Star Review mentioned that unusual topography plays a major role in screenwriter Yamashita's atmospherically charged debut. It leads to a spellbinding, unforgettable climax, and an unpredictable resolution. Some nice stuff there. She, they said, um, this distinctively original perspective on a community of stragglers, oddballs, and recluses heralds the arrival of a major new talent. And um, of course, I can't go without mentioning C.J. Box's uh, blurb, um, he's been on the show really, really super down to earth, uh, had said, Irish blasts into the world of crime fiction by doing something spectacular, introducing to us a totally unique location and subculture, a compulsive page-turner that's both atmospheric and claustrophobic at the same time.
1: I'm so grateful for all these fellow writers who have been so kind and giving me such great reviews and blurbs. Um, it's, it's definitely it's a new world for me coming from screenwriting, and it just felt like such a warm and welcoming environment, which um, you know, is not always the case in the movie world. Mm-hmm. But here it's been nothing but love, and um, so appreciative of all the other amazing writers out there in this field, and so grateful also to all the the kind reviews that I've been getting. It's it's been so exciting.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that the kind of the uh, contrast between the two worlds, and you know, as you say, um, it, it, there is uh, sometimes not as a warm. Reception, or maybe maybe there's less feedback. Do you think there's less feedback? I mean, because I guess what you're seeing, if you're a, a screenwriter, is reviews of the overall work, and not not necessarily particularly like your contribution, right? Because it's such a team sport, maybe.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so many people involved in producing a movie. It's not just the writer, you know, there's, and there's so many gatekeepers and um, so many levels that you have to get past. It sometimes feels like, whereas in the book world, it seems like there's room for everyone. Hmm. You know, like in, in um, for instance, um, when we were trying to go out with this as a series, but, you know, we didn't have a IP at that time and we didn't have a package. One of the big issues would be, for instance, we have another show that is a mystery set in a cold place. And that would be it for, you know, the whole year or a couple years, maybe if they did one. And, And that, you know, in that just general... Idea of a mystery in a cold place, but in the book world, you know, there's room for many mysteries in different cold settings, or even the same cold setting, and it's okay. Um, so that, in that sense, it feels like it's much more open. And there's so much luck involved in the screenwriting world because, again, there can only be one um, for a year or a decade of something. <laughs> so it's very competitive.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, congratulations, uh, regardless. And of course, I will link to the book and your home base there, Irishyamashita.com And you're on all the socials. It looks like we can connect. With you there, listeners can um, seek out City Under One Roof. But yeah, I want to talk about the process because you've you've elaborated a little a bit on it already, I know, um, not to belabor the ideas behind it, but y- you, you talk about the importance of outlining to your drafts that you had um, <laughs> called Vomit Drafts. But talk a little bit about the difference between putting together a season of a streamer versus putting together the chapters of a novel and what that was like for you. Because, uh, I find that I, some of your wisdom to be very valuable, I think, especially first time, uh, authors.
1: Yeah. There's similarities and there are differences. I think, um, coming from the screenwriting world though, it did help me come up with more of a disciplined way of writing. So I do outline, and as you said, I do write the vomit draft first, which um, I think psychologically that really helps me to actually finish something because you know in your first go, it doesn't have to be perfect. And actually a lot of things are gonna change and a lot of things are gonna throw out. So you don't wanna be too precious when you're starting. And I just go through and I do almost train of thought it doesn't even have to be complete sentences, but just get all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. And once I get to the end, then I know what has to change again when in the beginning when I go back and edit. And um, so I do that in both screenwriting and in writing novels. But the difference is, yeah, you have to go a lot deeper into the characters' minds. Like you're not going to have their um, inner monologues. On screen, as you would in um, writing a novel and uh, doing these separate characters, Uh, you do, you jump into the minds of these different characters. And so when I was writing the novel, I had to go back and do a pass for each character to make sure that their voice was consistent. I think in screenwriting, it's a little easier because you're not going that deep into their inner monologues when you're writing. Uh, the teleplay or the screenplay out.
0: Right, because that's it's, it's really challenging to do, especially with a um, character like Lonnie, for instance, not to do any spoilers here, but um, I thought that was really well executed, um, especially kind of um, depicting some level of mental illness, for instance, uh, which can be um, sometimes a little bit reductive on the screen, right? Yes,
1: yeah, so if I were going to do the screen version of this, you, know, you only hear what she says out loud, but in the book process, you're hearing also her thoughts in her head, and that was very difficult again because she has that mental disability. But it, for me, it was a it was difficult, but it was at the same time it was very fun um, trying to to come up with word salads and the <laughs> thoughts that are in her head that kind of just go off into tangents.
0: For sure. So, talk a little bit about because you're kind of fitting the novel initially into the margins, right? Because you're doing a, a lot of other projects, a lot of other creative projects. How are you? How are you finding the the impetus and the wherewithal to not only ch- ch- how are you switching gears creatively and kind of clearing the slate and getting yourself back to a place where you can actually get pages? And then what what did you find was most successful? You do kind of getting into flow state for that.
1: Uh, yeah the first book was very slow <laughs> and very difficult uh because right you're you're juggling all these different um stories around and so I think it was a it was a snail's pace process um for the I am working on a second book now um and that one is I dedicated a little more mind space to just doing the book um it does get, kind of tricky. But luckily, in the screenwriting world, there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of like, hurry up and get this done. So and then you turn that in, and then there's a long period of wait. And then, you know, they come up with notes, and they come back to you and hurry up and get this done. You know, so it's, it's sort of like there's peaks and crevices, you know, there's like the busy moments, and then there's a lot of downtime. And during the downtime, I was able to work on the book.
0: Again, the ultimate locked room mystery. City under one roof drops readers into an isolated snowy town, and is perfect for fans of Twin Peaks, Mayor of East Town, and Broadchurch. Did you pick those references? Because I, I definitely um, get some of that uh, Lynchian.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely Twin Peaks, David Lynch. Um, I I loved that show. Um, the other references, I actually had written it uh, before or I mean, most of the story was written out before those other ones came out, but um, I can see the the references there.
0: Yeah, big fan of *Mayor of Easttown also. Um, of course, Twin Peaks, a, a classic, classic uh, lynching experience with quite a few um, white rabbits, or I should say uh, more Mad Hatters than white rabbits. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'd love to... Um, Before we wrap up here, give you a fun one. But before we get your advice to fellow scribes and just kind of how to persevere, if you could have dinner with any author from any era uh, to your favorite restaurant in the world, um, who would you take and where would you take them? Uh, All expense paid, of course. Uh, We'll put it on the Writer Files uh, card.
1: (laughs) that's an interesting one I would love to take my former instructor Alice McDermott out to, to a dinner sometime I know she lives on the east coast and I don't think she remembers me probably because it was many 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 years ago but um, she has always been my inspiration um, I was lucky enough to have her as an instructor once and uh, I always always I look at her books sometime, sometimes, sometimes um, just for the way she crafts words and or sentences. And uh, where would I take her? Um, that's I'm not really sure where I would take her, <laughs> <laughs> wherever she wanted to go.
0: <laughs> okay, perfect. So she's on the East coast, but, uh, you are in Los Angeles.
1: I'm in Los Angeles and I did go to a book signing, um, maybe about six or seven years ago. And yeah, she didn't remember me, but (laughs) 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 I mean, that's uh, she, I'm sure she has like hundreds of students and, you know, this was a very long time ago, but I was still really in awe of her.
0: That's sweet. Well, cool. Shout out. Of course. Yeah, I'd love to wrap with your uh final kind of pearl of wisdom. I know you can keep it as short as possible. I know you gotta jump off and I apologize for running up to the half hour.
1: Um, I would say take things in bite-sized pieces. Like you don't have to write a you know, a perfect first chapter before you move on to your second chapter, because I think that's what held me back when I was starting out. Um, trying to write a novel. And that's why I couldn't finish one is because I was trying to make everything perfect in the first go. Um, just, just be free, you know, free yourself of that thought and, um, just have little go goals. Like I'm going to write a vomit draft in three months or something and, and, you know, go from there.
0: I love it. Free yourself, vomit draft, and remember nothing is precious. Thank you so much, Iris. We wish you the best of luck. Come back again and, uh, hopefully um we'll wrap in the future
2: okay thank you so much and when did you find the body officer newworth paused for a moment before adding parts when did you find the body parts it was a hand and a foot to be exact or at least amy thought there was a foot she hadn't bothered to look inside the boot, but since Officer Neworth said parts instead of part, she assumed there must have been a foot, a bloated, sawed-off, purple-blotched piece of flesh that would have made her dry heave at the sight. Yesterday, around 11 a.m., she said. She was pretty sure she had mentioned this detail at least six times that very day. She'd thought getting pulled out of algebra class would be fun, but now she was having second thoughts. The boot, she remembered, looked fairly new. It was covered with mud and grime, but the treads weren't that worn, and the laces hadn't frayed yet. She hadn't told any of this to Officer Newworth, though. Up until then, she tried to say as little as possible, sticking to answers like, yes, no, and I don't know. Amy Lynn stared at Officer Newworth, and his receded to an island hairline and decided that he was not someone who could be trusted. For one thing, he was wearing a gold watch. Any man who wears a gold watch is a little shady. Second, anyone who asks you the same question over and over expecting a different answer does not trust you. And therefore, you should not trust them. And last of all, New Earth was from Anchorage, and Point Meteor people tended to keep their mouths shut around any of the otters. Otters is what the kids called people outside Point Meteor because it kind of sounded like the word others. So tell me again, who were you with? He asked. Amy sighed internally and gave him a glare. Did she look like a caged parrot that would keep repeating the same thing over and over again? Officer Neworth shifted in his seat and adjusted his leather duty belt, which sagged with the weight of lethal equipment, a baton, cuffs, a magazine pouch, a flashlight, a taser, pepper spray, and, of course, a Glock pistol, but despite all his protective gear, Neuwirth looked uncomfortable under the glare of a 17-year-old who was barely five foot two. He finally turned his eyes away and looked down at his notepad. Celine Hoffler and Marco Salonga? Yes, Amy finally answered as if his question was somehow offensive. And what were you doing at the cove? Just getting out? Amy wasn't about to tell him the real reason they went to the cove, which was to smoke pot. Even though marijuana was legal in Alaska, they were still minors.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm. We did it. All right. Get out of here. Okay. <laughs> Thank thanks. you. Okay.
1: Bye. Bye-bye.